In Ezekiel chapter 40, we'll read verse 1 to 4. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. The man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I will show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And then what follows is a very detailed tour that Ezekiel has of a temple where he's given all the measurements of the temple. And flip forward to chapter 43 after he finishes this tour of the temple. Then he, that is God, led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had seen by the Chibar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold, and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their horns and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits and its entrances, that is, its whole design. And make known to them as well all its statutes, its whole design and all its laws and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. And then God describes to Ezekiel the, the various rules for the worship practices in the temple. Turn forward to chapter 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. 
Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea when the water flows into the sea. The water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish for this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand by the sea from Engedi to Englaim and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds like the fish of the great sea but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Then God describes to Ezekiel the, the divisions of this new heavenly land of Israel and takes him to the outside of the city. Final reading, chapter 48, verse 30. These shall be the exits of the city. On the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates. The gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi. The gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates. The gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. Amen. Open your Bibles back to uh, Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, Ezekiel's final vision of a heavenly temple. You're going to have to work hard with me tonight. This is going to be a bit of work trying to get through this and to understand it, uh, but trust me, it really is worth it. It is amazing what we are going to be looking at and what we are going to be learning as we close off Ezekiel this evening. The whole notion of utopia, I guess, is something that is not alien to us. Humanity has recognized that this world is broken, and we try to make it better. Maybe uh, many think that we can work towards uh, perfection. We think that if we adopt a, a certain political system, or if we can adopt a certain set of values, or eradicate a means of, of backwardness, then we can progress to becoming a more peaceful, loving society. We strive for utopia. But if history teaches us anything, it teaches us how ridiculous a notion that is. 
We cannot be in a perfect world. And we cannot be in a perfect world with a perfect society for one very simple reason. We are the problem. Humanity is what is wrong with this world. An excellent essay, I think I've I've quoted from this before perhaps, but an excellent essay that I read written by, I think, a non-Christian is an essay by William Golden, the author of Lord of the Flies, and it's an essay entitled On Fables. And in that essay, Golden admits, admits that he once believed in a progressive society. He believed in what he called the perfectibility of man. But one thing shattered that notion for him, the Second World War. And it was there he was confronted with a truth that humanity is fundamentally wicked. In fact, Golden says this, anyone who moved through the years of the war without understanding that man produces evil as a bee produces honey must have been either blind or wrong in the head. Now, Golden's assessment is right, but the Bible would go even further in explaining why we are like that. We are flawed, we are immoral, because ultimately, we are disconnected from God. We give no thought to our Creator, we ignore Him, and we either consciously or subconsciously rebel against Him and live for ourselves. And therefore, the world that we live in is broken, but it's not just broken. The world that we live in now is under judgment from God. So, trying to create a a perfect society is like trying to build a sandcastle with this huge tsunami looming on the horizon. We need our relationship with God to be fixed because perfection will not be found in a place but in Him alone. He is the one that we are made for. St. Augustine was right when he said that our souls are forever restless until they can find our rest in God alone. And this final vision of Ezekiel is all about that, God's plan to live with His people in perfection. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet who prophesied around 600 years before Jesus, and at this time, God's people were the nation of Israel. Israel were the people that were chosen by God to be His means of blessing the entire world. They were His unique people. The the, the beginning of fixing that relationship between humanity and Him was to begin with Israel. And one of the ways that Israel was unique was that in their capital city of Jerusalem was the temple. The temple, that was where God's glory dwelt, where the the focused presence of God was. That, at the time, was the only connecting point between God and man. That was the, the place where heaven met earth, at the temple in Jerusalem. But in Ezekiel's time, we've been seeing this. They are in real crisis because Israel had taken God's temple and had desecrated it. They had rebelled against God. They had ignored His commandments for hundreds and hundreds of years. So God, in His judgment, sent the mighty Babylonian empire to destroy Jerusalem and to raise His temple to the ground. And all that's left, as we read of this vision in Ezekiel, all that's left of Israel is a tiny, pathetic remnant of exiles, including Ezekiel himself, who were brought off to Babylon as prisoners. 
And Ezekiel, his message at the start of his book, was one of constant warning. He was telling the exiles, Jerusalem's going to fall, the temple's going to be destroyed. They wouldn't listen, and then it eventually happened. But in chapters 34 to 48, the message of Ezekiel changes from a message of judgment to a message of hope. See, the big question in this book is, will God live with his rebellious people? In chapters 34 to 48, explain to us that he will and how he will. These chapters contain great promises for these exiles who've just, who've lost everything. And I've attached them, I put an outline in your service sheets, which kind of just shows the whole book of Ezekiel. It's just for your own personal use, just to remind you what we've looked at as we've looked at through Ezekiel and some of the chapters that we missed out. But now as we come to the end, we're coming to the most important bit in the entire book, the most important promise of restoration. How is God going to fix everything that the temple in Jerusalem stood for? In other words, how is he going to live with his people? How is God going to create the perfect world where he and his people live together in harmony? That is what we are going to look at. And as we look at that, that, that's the storyline of the whole Bible, by the way, so this is huge. As we look at this, we must remember that whenever we read Old Testament prophecy, it's always pointing us forward. So we're going to look at what it meant for the exiles then, this vision, what it means for the church today, And then finally, what it will look like in the future, um, because that is where it's all heading to. Okay, let's look at what it meant for the exiles then, Ezekiel's vision of this perfect temple. Chapter 14, the 25th year of our exile. So Ezekiel's been in exile for 25 years. At the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, 14 years since Jerusalem and the temple have been destroyed. He brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. So Ezekiel is taken away in one of his visions in which he sees this city on top of a very high mountain. Now, we have to remember that when we look at this vision in these chapters, that this is symbolic. It's trying to convey a point rather than a literal reality. And I've not just made that up. We know that because, for one thing, there are no very high mountains in Israel. And there's weird details in the vision that don't really make sense literally. Like in in chapter 47, you've got a river that's flowing up a hill. So after Ezekiel is shown this city, he's taken to its temple and he's given a tour around the temple, which you can kind of, you can skim read, you can see it over in chapters 40 to 42, um, this kind of very detailed description of the measurements of this temple that he has taken around. Now, why, if it's symbolic, do we have a detailed description of all the measurements of this temple? So this was clearly something that the Israelites were not meant to build, which is why when Israel did eventually return to their land, they never tried to copy this blueprint for a temple. So they knew themselves, this is something that they were not meant to build, but why all the detail? Well, we need to remember our original audience. Now you have to understand, this is a bit of Bible history for you, you have to understand that When God originally came to dwell with Israel, it was an incredible moment, and it was in a structure called the tabernacle. 
And at the end of the book of Exodus, there was a long, detailed description of measurements and how this tabernacle was to be built because God was coming to stay and all the details really mattered. And then when the Israelites eventually settled in Jerusalem as their capital, God's dwelling was moved from the tabernacle to the temple. So in 1 Kings chapter 6 through 8, we get another long, detailed description of all the measurements that went into the temple because this was important to them. It's God's dwelling with them. Whenever God described His dwelling with His people, it was through detailed descriptions of the building. So when Ezekiel describes these measurements to his original hearers, often exile with no temple, they would have understood Ezekiel's describing God coming to stay. God's coming back to them. And so he's using language that that they're familiar with. That's what they would be thinking as they were hearing Ezekiel tell them about this temple. God's coming back to us. God's going to come and live with us. Now, we might not be familiar, but for them, these measurements conjured up all sorts of ideas of God's presence with them. But there's something different going on here. You see, unlike those previous passages, this is not something that they were meant to build. For one thing, the text gives us no detail at all on any of the materials used like it did for the previous temple. For another, this temple seems to have already been built by God Himself. Ezekiel's just kind of given a tour around it. It doesn't sound like the most exciting tour to me, but for them, it would have been really exciting. So this is not a vision of a literal temple that God wants his people to make, but a very detailed metaphor designed to show the exiles one big thing, God is going to live with them. He is going to dwell with his people in a way that he has never done before. If you've been with us as we've looked through Ezekiel, you might remember that this is not the first temple tour Ezekiel had. Way back in chapter 8 through to 11, Ezekiel was given a kind of visionary tour, but it wasn't of some heavenly temple. It was the actual temple in Jerusalem. And it was a tour that was horrible because in it, Ezekiel saw what God's people had done to this building that was meant to be the connecting point between God and man how Israel had profaned it, how they had worshipped other gods and turned their back on the God of Israel. But this vision, this is here to stand as a direct contrast to the real one that fell in Jerusalem. It's the exact opposite. And look what happens at the start of chapter chapter 43. At the end of chapter 11, God's glory leaves the temple in Jerusalem. But do you see what happens in the first few verses of chapter 43? the glory comes back. The glory comes back, and it seems that this time it's permanent. This time it's infinitely more glorious. These struggling group of exiles are not being shown simply a vision of a building, but a symbol of the fact that God is coming back to them, and He's going to come back in all His glory. And that's amazing news for three reasons. Firstly, it means that the relationship between God and them is going to be restored. When God comes back to his sinful, rebellious people, he is going to fix them by removing all their sin, all that is wrong with them, so that they can perfectly enjoy him. Look at verse 6 of chapter 43. 
While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by the dead bodies. All the wicked things that we have seen them do as we've studied the book of Ezekiel, all of that's going to be gone forever, no more. And they will be fully in God's glory. You see, for an ancient Israelite, the temple always signified the forgiveness of sins and life with God. Do you know what we'd have to do if um, you were one of God's people back then before Jesus? Whenever you do something wrong, well, actually all the time, you'd have to come to the temple with a cow or a sheep, um, and then you'd have to give that to the priest, and the priest would kill that animal. And it would symbolically show that, that the judgment that you deserve for the wrong that you've done has gone on the animal instead of you, and therefore you can get near to the presence of God. That's what you had to do constantly, time and time and time and time again. You had to constantly bring these sacrifices to the temple. And in chapter 43, verse 13, all the way through to, to chapter 46, you can read it in your own time. It'll make good bedtime reading tonight. It kind of describes that process, but perfected. A perfect temple worship. A stark contrast to the temple worship Ezekiel first saw earlier in this book. Now again, this is a metaphor. This is a vision of something that was to happen. It's Ezekiel using language that his original hearers would understand. They would listen to this and they would know that in the future, God would restore them to a perfect worship of Him. Secondly, when God's glory comes, we see that there will be an abundance of life for his people. Now, this is really cool. After his kind of tour of the temple, Ezekiel comes back to the entrance, chapter 47, and what he sees is slightly odd. Issuing from the floor of the temple is a river. So, Ezekiel's intrigued. He sees the river, verse 2. He sees it kind of trickling out. So he decides to follow the river with this kind of angelic tour guide guiding him with his measuring stick. And you notice that, that as he follows the river in verses 3 to 6, he stops to check how deep it is, and it keeps getting deeper and deeper until it's just this great massive river that he cannot cross. And then on either side of the river, there's, there's trees of every kind. It's a source of life. In fact, it's so life-giving that when it flows into the sea, verse 8, do you see that? When it flows into the sea, it makes the salt water fresh. It brings life, abundant life. Every living creature that swarms will live. It contains a great number of fish and vegetation. And you see, see what he's saying? From the temple, from the presence of God, will come abundant life. Look at verse 12 of, of chapter 47. On the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. For the original readers, you know, when they heard that, they would think about one thing, the Garden of Eden, when God perfectly lived with humanity. 
no death, no disease, no illness, just life and abundance from the presence of God. When God is present, death is absent. And all the beauty and all the wonder and all the things that we love about creation now will be restored in its multicolored goodness. Abundance of life coming from the presence of God. Thirdly and finally, we see when God is there in His glory, it creates a perfect, perfected community. The end of the vision from uh, chapter 47, 13 through to the end of the chapter, Ezekiel kind of moves out the temple and, and God gives him a description of the whole land of Israel being restored. Now, you have to bear in mind, let's think about our original hearers of this. The original hearers of this vision were from one of two tribes in Israel. There was 12 tribes and they were from one of two tribes, either Judah or Benjamin. Every other single tribe had been eradicated in God's judgment. They'd all been destroyed. And all that's left is this tiny remnant from these two tribes. But here we see that God seems to have a plan in the future for all the tribes of Israel. He's going to restore them and they will live in his land, people from every tribe. And in the center of the land, there's this great mountain. And on top of the mountain, there's this, ma this magnificent city. And in the center of the city, there is the temple of God. And look at the amazing final verse of Ezekiel. What's the name of this city? Not Jerusalem. What's the name of this city? The name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Yahweh Shema in Hebrew. The big question all throughout the book of Ezekiel, the big question we have been looking at as we have studied this book is, will God be with His people? Will God be with these rebellious, sinful people? Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there. How does Ezekiel end? God being with His people forever in His glory. Now, what does that mean for us today? Second point, Ezekiel's vision in the church. Now, I've been trying to show you that the vision of Ezekiel's temple was something that would not be fulfilled in a literal way. It's symbolic language to convey to them this truth. God will live with them, He will restore them, and He will give them an abundance of life as they dwell in the presence of His glory forever. That's what they've got from this vision. And I've been trying to hammer home that point because the beginning of the fulfillment of this vision was not found in a building, but a person. Jesus. Jesus is the perfected temple of God. All the measurements of the temple denote perfect symmetry. Well, Jesus is the perfect temple of God. Why? Because Jesus is God. God in the flesh. God literally come down to dwell with humanity. That's why the Apostle John says of Jesus in John 1.14 that Jesus, the Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And listen to this, and we have seen His glory. What was the purpose of Jesus coming to earth? To restore us, to fix us. Not, not just Israel. Began in Israel, but it was for the whole world. He came to make forgiveness possible for all the wrong that we have done. And how does he do that? He does it by becoming our sacrifice. All that, that history of Old Testament temple sacrifice, that was laid down by God for one reason, so that we could understand what Jesus would do for us. 
He takes the punishment for our sin. He takes the anger that we deserve for our wrongdoing, and He is punished instead of us so that we can be accepted, so that we can be brought into the presence of God. And that's why forgiveness is not just an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. What's the end? Being with God. And so what does Jesus give you if you trust him? He doesn't just give you forgiveness, but the Bible is very clear. He gives you his Holy Spirit. In other words, he gives you God himself. God will live in you. You will always have a permanent connection now to God. You don't need a priest because Jesus is your priest. You don't need a sacrifice because Jesus is your sacrifice. You constantly have his ear. You don't have to go through all this ritual process. You can speak to him whenever you want because he lives in you. In other words, you and I are the temple. There's no such thing as a sacred space or a thin place between heaven and earth. It's you as a Christian. You are the temple. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are growing, the church is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In him we also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. How do I know that God's residing in me I mean, I don't feel different. What does that even mean? Here's how you know. Look back at chapter 43, verse 11. What was the perfection of the temple of God's holiness? What was that meant to expose in the Israelites? Shame. Shame for their sin. In other words, God's perfect holiness was there to show up their profound flaws. So if God is residing in you, you will know it because you will be ashamed when you sin against him. You know what his holiness is like. And not only that, verse 11 seems to to talk about the desire to observe God's laws and walk in his statutes. Shame and obedience, those are the hallmarks of having God. Ah, but there's more to it than that. Because remember chapter 47, the abundant life? Let me tell you a story from the Bible, one of my favorite stories. You know, Jesus, um, we, we might kind of read over Ezekiel 40 to 48, but chapter 47 was a really important chapter to Jesus. Uh, and there's a great story, it's one of my favorite stories in John chapter 4, where he is sitting at a well with a woman that no one would go beside, that no one would speak to, She was a a racial outsider, she was a gender outsider, and she was a moral outsider. She had a very sexually promiscuous past, so nobody would speak to this woman. But Jesus goes to her, he sits down, they actually, the two of them have a conversation about the temple and where they should worship God. And then Jesus looks right into her heart, he sees the sin in her life, he talks about it, and then he looks at the water in the well, he says this, whoever drinks that water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, because the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And later on in John, Jesus calls that living water 
the Holy Spirit of God. He's saying to her, if you come to me, I will give you God's Holy Spirit. You'll be made alive. You won't be thirsting after satisfaction anywhere else because living inside you will be the source of all life and all goodness and and all joy. You'll get me. God himself, the one our hearts are made for. You see, Jesus sees the depth of our sin and despite it, he still wants her. When you know God, you're not desperately looking for for meaning and satisfaction and, and anything else in life. You're not thirsting after some sort of purpose because you have inside you the abundance of life. There's just a feeling of completion and knowing God. Like this is where you're meant to be. You become so enamored with Christ, so aware of His, of his all giving sufficiency. And everything in this world just seems like a, a saltwater drag in comparison to having the fountain of life. And when we go out as God's temple into the world, when a church is planted in, in Haddington, you know how amazing that is? That's when there's life when a church that preaches the word of God, when people go out with the Holy Spirit of God, they bring life to a world that is thirsty and dying. You see, the greatest thing about being a Christian, if you're not a Christian here tonight, do you know what the greatest thing about being a Christian? It's not forgiveness, it's not grace, it's not the promise of heaven. It's Christ. It's having him. It's like you know a child who has this kind of really perfect relationship with their father, and their father goes away on a business trip and comes back and gives their child a gift. And the child is not excited to, to get the gift. They're excited to see their father, to see him. And there are many good gifts that, that the abundance of God's life brings to this world. But it's nothing compared to having him. The giver is infinitely greater than the gifts. It's the source of it all. Thirdly, finally, Ezekiel's vision in the future. We'll, we'll close with this. You know, Ezekiel's future temple vision, it began to be filled with Jesus. It begins to be fulfilled with the giving of the Holy Spirit. So now you can experience the presence of God right now if you trust Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. But whilst it begins now, we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that it ends now. It's only just beginning. We're not there yet. Why do we long for the perfect world? Why? Because that's what we're made for. It's not here. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're as much in exile as the prisoners in Babylon were. You're not home. You're not in Zion. You're not in the promised land. We are waiting for something infinitely more glorious and perfect. We are waiting for the full presence of the glory of God. And you feel that now with loved ones who are dying, with old age affecting your body, with disease that spreads, with with the heartache and the pain of broken relationships, with mental anxiety and depression, with just the feeling of being wearied and battered by the stresses and troubles of life. You'll feel it every day as a Christian with the battle against sin, knowing that we are forgiven and yet being acutely aware of how wicked we are and wishing you could stop sinning more than anything else. We're not there yet. Even though you know Christ, you want more because restoration will only come 
when we are with God in his glory. And that's where Ezekiel's vision's pointing towards. Turn with me to the very end of the Bible, the very end of time, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. Look at verse 10. Now remember that vision in Ezekiel and see how this language is picked up here in Revelation. Uh, It's not that John is copying Ezekiel, John the author of Revelation. John's seen exactly the same thing Ezekiel saw, but this time John sees it through the lens of Christ. And so he describes the symbolism differently. Look at verse 10. And he carried me away in a spirit to a great high mountain. Hello? And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gate, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. And on the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lambs. Now, do you see that? It's it's different. Similar, isn't it? To what we saw at the end of Ezekiel, but different. What's different now? The 12 apostles. In other words, this city for God's people is not just Israel. This is the church. This is a bigger city with the apostles at the foundation. But the biggest difference, have a skim down, have a look down at verse 22. You see what the biggest difference in John's vision is? Verse 22. No temple. And I saw no temple. Jesus is the temple. We know that now. We will be in the presence of a person, not a building, and we will see him in his fullness. Let me keep reading. Verse 23, think of Ezekiel. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it glory and honor of the nations." But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you see the other big element John brings into this vision of Ezekiel? The nations the nations will be healed by these trees. The nations will be brought in. We will all be healed of sin. Nothing that is unclean or detestable or false, all that is wrong in us will be gone forever when we are in the glory of God. No selfishness, no lies, no greed, no adultery, no idolatry, no gossip, no anger, no malice, just 
perfected love and compassion and kindness and goodness and, and selflessness. No hurt or heartache. God himself will, will wipe away all our tears and death will be no more. An abundance of life will flow from the presence of Jesus. Our bodies will be fixed and restored and there'll be a new creation. A world that is, as C.S. Lewis says, not less real than this one, but more real. With trees and rivers and mountains and all the greatness of creation. Because the God of all life is there. The most amazing thing about all of this is not what there, not what's there, but who's there. God will be there. We'll get to see him at last. The one who bled and who died for me. One who loves me more than anyone ever could. The one who took this object of wrath and made him into a child of God. My king and my savior will get to see him face to face. He will say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's joy. And then this wretched sinner, as John says, will reign with Jesus forever. You see, perfection, utopia, paradise, whatever you want to call it, can be summed up in four words. The Lord is there. Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there. Let me pray. Father, what an amazing end to the book of Ezekiel. First reading, it just looks like measurements and practice, worship practice and allocation of a land and measurements of a city, but it's so much more. It's a vision of the presence, of your presence with your people. Yahweh Shema, the Lord is there. Father, we long for the day when we get to see Jesus face to face because the greatest thing about being a Christian is knowing him. And we want to see him and be like him. And we know that in your grace, definitely not because we deserve it, but in your grace we will reign with him forever and ever. The Lamb is our shepherd king. And we are so privileged now to have Jesus with us You're not waiting for us to come to the new creation. You're here now, Jesus, and we praise you that that you are here by your Holy Spirit, that it's evident in the fact that you're changing our lives, that we feel the shame of sin, that that we feel a desire to obey you. It's evident in the, the truth that we just feel the abundance of life that you bring. Even in the midst of tears and torment, We know that you're enough and we can say that you're enough. Father, it's a great thing to be in your presence permanently, just to have your ear, to be able to speak to you. It's a great thing to know you're always with us. And one day we will be with you fully in your glory. Help us to hold on to these great truths in Jesus' name. Amen.